This morning is going to be slightly different than uh, typical messages. I'm actually treating this a little bit more like a Bible study than I am a sermon, but it will have sermon-esque features, and so um, it will be recognizable at the very least. Uh, today's message is is out of chapter seven, and we're and I, and I really struggled with this passage uh, in how to present it because it seemed like every time I tried to break it down, I felt like I was being redundant. And what I mean by that is a lot of the stuff we're talking about today. Uh, if I had broken it down in specifics, was going to be stuff we have already talked about in in some ways. And so uh, what I thought we would do is we'd have basically uh, two major points this morning, uh, a summary of the life and times of Melchizedek and the exalted Christ. So those are the two basic overarching themes of what we're going to be talking about this morning. And chapter 7 of Hebrews is a is sort of a hinge chapter, if you will. It's a hinge. And what I mean by that is that everything up until now has been kind of building it up. And so we've been talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses, how Jesus is greater than Abraham. And we're going to find out today, finally, that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Now, we've been talking about that for the last several weeks, but we're going to kind of come to a conclusion on that, and then this is going to be a launching pad for the, for the remainder of the study, if you will, where it's going to kind of, the author is going to kind of flesh that out. And so we're going to walk through chapter 7 here. And so if you have your Bibles, um, I encourage you to open them. Um, we will have it on the screens, uh, but let me also encourage you, I mean, this is, I'm actually going to be preaching from here instead of a manuscript today, because I write, I mean, I write up my Bible um, and put notes and highlights and stuff like that, and it's just a lot easier when I go back to be able to track that stuff. So let me just encourage you, I mean, feel free uh, to, uh, to, to do that, to help you, as you in your Bible study. Um, to, to begin, though, before we dive in here, let me just kind of uh, give a little bit of a preface. The author of Hebrews has been writing to a particular demographic or groups of individuals, primarily Hebrew Christians, okay? So these are individuals who, uh, who were uh, Jews or who are Jews, ethnically Jews, but who have become Christians. They've become to follow Christ. However, it's very clear, and we see this through the New Testament. In fact, Paul addresses this in, in Galatians and other letters, uh, the fact that many of these new Christians, these new converts from Judaism, still have these old allegiances that are really, really hard to break. And I've tried to come up with some sort of analogy uh, to that to our own day, and really there's not a, there's not a fitting analogy uh, to this. There's really not a fitting analogy because of, of the, uh, the inherent, um, the, the inherent uh, supremacy that their faith that is tied to their ethnicity held in the Jewish life. And what I mean by that is that there was nothing dearer to those Jews than Moses and Abraham and the Levites, and the law, and the Mosaic law. There was nothing dearer to them, meaning that their entire life was encapsulated by these things. If I could, everything else, their jobs, even their families, all of those things revolved around their, their devotion, their supreme devotion 
to Yahweh and to the things of God. And so the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the stories and the promises of Abraham, Moses, and how God has worked, worked through the Old Testament, those, they would have known those things very, very well. They would have understood them. And to retreat from that to Christ would have been a, a monumental movement in their life. In fact, the one analogy I could say is that in modern day, it's as if missionaries going to the Middle East were speaking to Muslims and Muslims being converted and moving to Christ as opposed to the Quran and Allah. It would have been that kind of shift. It's something that's a little less recognizable to us because we are especially in our Americanized culture, it's a different feeling for us because we are so inundated by culture and all the different facets of culture that, I mean, all of these things reign supreme and take priority in our lives where our faith at times will take a back seat. Even in Christians who I would consider to be exceptionally committed and devoted to Christ, we find ourselves at times being pulled away from the things that we love, our first love, if you will. And so this right here, the, the, the concepts that Paul is, is addressing and that the author of Hebrews is addressing would have been very, um, would have been a shock to the system, if you will, uh, to, the, uh, to the audience. And so I just kind of want to preface that, that what he is talking about in these previous chapters and up to now, this is no little thing that he's talking about. Now, what's interesting, though, is this character Melchizedek. This character Melchizedek, if you talk to especially a modern Jew and you brought up Melchizedek, they might know the name. They might know the name. But honestly, outside of the New Testament, if you leave the New Testament aside and just focus on the Old Testament, Melchizedek is in two places. He's in Genesis 14, and he is referenced in the Psalms. Psalm 110, in fact. That's it. So many Jews may not, like us, we don't always, like we come up with some name, we think we hear some name from Scripture, and we're like, I didn't even know that name was in there, right? And sometimes we're miss, like adding names to Scripture at times, right? Because there's just so many of them. Well, Melchizedek, in the grand scheme of the Old Testament, if you just took the Old Testament in isolation, really doesn't play that big a role. It's kind of an obscure thing there in Genesis 14. And the fact that the Psalms address that, like goes back to Psalm, goes back to Genesis 14, like why would they do that if you take the Old Testament in isolation? And this is the beauty. And this is the evidence, some evidence. There's multiple uh, points of evidence, but this is one piece that shows the unity between the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's the New Testament that makes Melchizedek an important figure. If you don't have the New Testament, Melchizedek is just another name to forget. But because we have the New Testament, specifically Hebrews, Melchizedek is a completely different character now, and we have to take notice. So I just want us to remember that as we move through. Now, our focal verse this morning is actually at the end of chapter 7. I'm going to have you just stay, uh, stay seated. 
uh, and I'm going to read this. This is actually from verses 26 through 28. And so that's where we're leading up to. It's sort of our moment of praise and exaltation at the end of this message. Um, and this is where we're going to see Christ really being exalted, even though he's been exalted through this entire chapter. So if you just follow with me here. It says here, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, and he's attributing this to Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those of, his, of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, it is astounding to me as a man living in 2020 to look at these ancient texts that were penned by men through the authority of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and to see the unity of these two covenants that have come together, the law and the gospel. And they have come together in this unity to paint this beautiful picture, Lord, of how you have been working all of this time to, to show your love for man, to show your uh, to show your holiness, to show your righteousness, to show your kindness and your justice, to paint this picture that culminates in this sacrifice made by your perfect Son. And how this massive jigsaw puzzle, Father, fits together so we can see in the end this glorious picture of your will and your providence and your glory. And so, Father, I pray that in just some small way that I can make that clear this morning as we walk through this text. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's just get started. All right, we're just going to walk through here. And uh, we're going to see where we hit. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go paragraph by paragraph through chapter, uh, through chapter 7. And I'm going to make some points in chapter 7. You might just make some notes, jot down in your Bible or on a scrap piece of paper. And you can go back later and write them in there, highlight, underline, all that kind of stuff. Um, so to help you out. So we're just going to walk through like a Bible study. So starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Let's pause right there. First of all, Melchizedek. He was both king and priest. That is a unique feature. In, in uh, Jewish life, priests were not kings. They were priests, and kings were kings. And in fact, they could not cross that barrier. If a priest tried to take on the role of a king, he would be judged. If a king 
tried to take on the role of a priest, he would be judged. They were completely separate. So Melchizedek was unique right here in the offset. There was only one other individual who we could rightly say was both priest and king, and that's Jesus. And in fact, I would say the reason why Melchizedek was pointed out to being a priest and a, and a king was because of Jesus, so that it would point to Christ. It's this beautiful picture that the author is painting. A second thing I might mention here is that it says he's the priest of the most high God. Remember that he's in an area filled, filled with multiple gods, if you will, people who believed in multiple gods, but there was a hierarchy. All right. In polytheism, there, these gods are just many, many gods, but there is actually this, this other concept, I believe it's henotheism, which basically puts a hierarchy on these gods in, in ancient paganism, right? And so to, that some gods were subsidiary to other gods. Well, in this text, it says that he was the priest of who? The Most High God. Right there at the offset, we're saying that Melchizedek followed Yahweh, that that was his God. Okay, And so Melchizedek followed this most high God, and it says he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. You'll remember that from Genesis 14. Remember that in previous chapters, Abraham and Lot separated. Lot got himself into some trouble. Lot was a bit of a troublemaker, if you will, right? Abraham comes to the rescue, slaughters the kings. Here comes Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses him with wine and bread. Doesn't that sound familiar? He comes out and he blesses him as a priest. We're going to hear more about that here in a minute. But that's what's happening here. In verse 2, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation, this is meaning Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. So the first thing we see here is that Abraham tithes, Till Melchizedek. Well, now the Levites aren't around yet, but if we go back into the Old Testament after Moses, we see that the Levites, all right, the Levites were the priestly group, right? And we see that the individuals were tithing to the priests, right? And we'll see again in a second that it was always two things. Number one, the inferior always tithed upwards, all right, to somebody who was more superior. And the superior always blessed the inferior. So in this sense, when it says that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the author is immediately saying that Melchizedek stood above Abraham. So Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now that was a big deal. That was a big deal to these people. And then I love this. He is first by translation of his name, meaning the name Melchizedek, king of righteousness, Half of his name looks very similar to the word righteousness. And then second, it says, and then he is also king of Salem, a king of peace. Do we see this in any other individual in scripture? Well, Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus, the prince of peace. Right? We can see it just lining up here, pointing to Christ. Now, anybody in the Old Testament looking at this would say, this is an obscure figure, maybe forgettable, but now we're seeing the fuller picture come to play in Hebrews where Melchizedek is just pointing to Christ. I mean, he's just screaming it from the mountaintops. In fact, the author here in Hebrews is like saying, listen, listen, Melchizedek was not just some minor figure in the Old Testament. He plays a critical role. You just can't see it yet. You just can't see it. I'm getting goosebumps. All right, verse three. 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is not saying that Melchizedek did not have a mother or father, okay? He was human. There was not a supernatural birth there. What it's saying is that he was not in a line of priests where you can go back and look at the genealogies and find Melchizedek coming out to be like it was his right, if you will, by genealogy to become priest. That's not what, that's what's happening here is there, the author is saying, no, he was appointed by God. He was specifically by the providence of God pointed out, appointed to be this priest. Remember that guy named Jesus? He was also not in the line of the Levites to become a priest. He was from the clan of Judah, yet he was appointed high priest forever. Second second, uh, paragraph. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Rarely do we ever see Abraham being called a patriarch in in the Bible. But here we do emphasizing the grandness and the greatness of Melchizedek. I mean, the author of Hebrews is building Melchizedek up. He is saying he is the cream of the crop. He is one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament. You just didn't know it. Why in the world is he doing that? Because here in a few verses, he's going to say, as great as Melchizedek is, he doesn't compare to Jesus. He does not compare to Jesus. And so he says, see, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi, those priests, who receive priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Okay, so the Levites would gather the tithes from the Israelites, right? So it's very similar to what's going on. But then the author uses the word but. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Blessed him who had the promises. This man, Abraham, the patriarch, was the one. If this was the matrix, he would be Neo in the Old Testament, okay? Meaning that he was the one everybody was looking to here because he was the one that God made the promises to, all right? He was the one that God made the promises to, and he is saying in this text that Melchizedek was receiving offerings that later on in the Mosaic law would have been given to the Levites. Melchizedek is not just greater than Abraham, he's greater than the Levites, than that priesthood. But this man who does not have a descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, let me be clear. Jews listening to that would have been completely perplexed. We thought Abraham was the man. Well, Abraham was the man. He was the one whom those promises were made. But he was not superior to Melchizedek because Melchizedek plays a completely different role. Remember that Abraham is this old covenant figure pointing to a new covenant. Melchizedek is in this old covenant era, but painting this massive picture of the one who would purchase the new covenant for us. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, 
but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. That's a weird way of saying that, right? Let me read that again. In the one case, tithes are received by, by mortal men. What does that mean? It means that the Levites are receiving tithes, okay? They're just mortal men receiving tithes. They're mortal, and I will say sinful men, right? They're making sacrifice upon for themselves and for the people. In that one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one, now he's talking about Melchizedek, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. What does that mean? It means that where the Levites were accepting tithes as mortal men, Melchizedek was receiving tithes as one who is pointing to the one who will never die, to Christ, the one who lives forever. You see the, the supremacy there? The author is basically saying, yeah, the Levites were important. They were important. They were pointing, they were pointing to a, a time when there would be no sacrifice, but they were still mortal men that represented a law, okay, that would eventually be fulfilled by Christ, but a law that, el- that points out sin and brings wrath. But Melchizedek is testifying to the Christ who lives forever. Melchizedek is higher than the Levites. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. What does that mean? Okay, you're seeing it up here, right? Thank you, Amber, for flashing that up. Okay, Let's, let, me, let me explain what that means. One might even say, you can see him, he's a teacher, right? He's a pastor. He's trying to explain this. He's saying this, Levi, even though he was not even born yet, he wasn't born yet, right? Levi in a sense, through Abraham's offerings, was giving tithe to Melchizedek. Even though he wasn't even born yet, he was giving tithes to Melchizedek. Now, why does that matter? It is another argument, another explanation. Remember that the one who gives the tithes is inferior to the one who receives the tithes. So the author in this entire chapter is making the claim that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham because he blessed Abraham and received tithes from Abraham, and he is superior to the Levites, to the, to the Old Testament priesthood, because he is receiving, even in absentia, tithes from the Levites. So do we get that? So that's what's going on in that first passage there. Okay, I, I, this, you can see why this is necessary to kind of explain this, to wrap it all together, okay? The author has to make the point in this passage that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham or the Levites, which a typical Jew in this time would have never come to that conclusion on their own, would have never come to that conclusion. They likely would have had to have been reminded who Melchizedek was. But now the author is making that claim, and they're all looking at him, Wanting to stone him, probably, all right, if he was reading this to them. Wanting to stone him because this is big news. Let's keep on moving because he's just going to build on this now, okay? Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, 
for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So it's a rhetorical question, right? He's saying this, by perfection, he doesn't mean perfect in the way that we use it, right? Like getting a, like getting a perfect score on a, on a test. What he means by perfect is that is, we could say it this, now if God's plan or could have, if God's plan could have come to completion or fruition through the Levites, then why do we need the Mel- why do we need the line of Melchizedek? That's what he's saying. Why couldn't this have just been done through the Levites and not Melchizedek? That's kind of a, a simple way of saying it. But he says something in this parent in this parentheses. For under it the people received the law. The Levites were those who received the law. And we already know what the law brings. The law does not bring life. It brings acknowledgement of sin and wrath. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So the Levites are those who are making sacrifices according to the law. So if we go back to the Mosaic law, we see how the the Levites were supposed to make sacrifices by way of the law, okay? And for those who broke the law. However, when there is a change to a Melchizedekian, is that right? Um, if that if that lineage, if we're now looking at a new priesthood, that means we're now not under that old law. What are we now under? A new law or grace. The law changes. That's what he's arguing here. See how he's kind of painting this picture together? He's painting this picture together here, okay? So, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And over here on the side, I say, with Jesus, the Levitical priesthood has ended, but Melchizedek through Christ will remain. A change in the law has, been, has begun because Jesus was not a Levite. I made that note in there in my Bible to make sure that I remembered that Christ fulfilled the law and is now a representative and a fulfiller of the new, in fact, a guarantee of what? The new covenant. It's a new parameter now. It's a new paradigm. There is a paradigm shift because of Melchizedek and his priesthood through Christ. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. He's talking about Jesus in the line of Judah. Verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, showing that Jesus is not a genealogical inheritor of or heir of the Levitical priesthood. He's of a different line, meaning there's now going to be a different rule of law, the new covenant. All right? And and again, the author here is making this beautiful argument that the old law has passed away and a new has come. It doesn't mean that the old law was worthless. 
In fact, Paul says, no, 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 no. The, the old law was good because without it, I wouldn't have known that I was, a, I was a covetous person. But now we have grace. Now we have the new covenant. There is a new paradigm. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Who's he talking about there? Jesus, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. You're not going to go backwards on Jesus and all of a sudden find a Levite. That's not what you see there. But by the power of an, a what? An indestructible life. I love that. I love that. Why? How has he inherited this priesthood? Not because his mom and dad were in the line of the Levites. It's because he is the son of God with an indestructible life. That resurrection warrants him the priesthood forever, forever. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'm just going to say this. There were thousands of priests, thousands of priests. One priest picked up after another priest died, right? There is no other Jesus. Jesus is Jesus is Jesus forever and ever and ever. For it was witnessed of him you are, and this is Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a beautiful, beautiful, quote this one, a beautiful thing. <laughs> All right? That's a beautiful thing. Verse 18. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Well, those are harsh words, right? And in parentheses, it says, for the law made nothing perfect. What it means, he's again, he is using hyperbole here in this statement when he calls the law useless. Because we know the law wasn't useless in the sense that it had, no, it had no purpose or anything. What he's saying is the law had, was useless for life. The law was not giving life to anybody. The law was pointing out sin and bringing wrath when we broke the law. But it wasn't giving life to anybody. And in fact, the law required that something had to die. It's actually the opposite of life. It warranted death through sacrifice. But on the other hand, man, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus comes in, fulfills that law which reveals sin, brings wrath, and now is introduced as what? The life giver. Where once we had death, what do we have now? A hope for new life. We can see now why Melchizedek stands greater and superior to that of the Levites. The Levites couldn't do that. All the Levites were doing were paving the way. They were just showing the sacrificial system that eventually would come to fruition in the Lamb of God dying once and for all, for all sin, for all time. Verse 20, And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such with it without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Something We already talked about this. Something with an oath is greater than something without an oath because the Lord makes an oath by his own name to Abraham, right? Verse 22, 
might be my favorite phrase in this entire passage. This makes Jesus the guarantor, or the guarantor, yeah, there we go, of a better covenant. Jesus is the one that guarantees this new covenant. Through his life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so are we all on the same page here? We all on the same page? Anybody worshiping yet? Okay. I am a little bit. We're going to get there. We're going big time here in a minute. Okay. All right. Let's see what he says. He's going to still build that up. Okay. He's going to build it up some more. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They were prevented by death from continuing office. Sounds almost like, well, I mean, in some ways it sounds like the Pope, right? Now, not here recently, not here recently, because they just kind of be stepping down whenever they're tired, I guess. But it sounds kind of like a pope or a king or something like that. They step down only when death. All right? Well, it's kind of like the priests of the Old Testament. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now we've switched from Melchizedek to Jesus. Jesus maintains his priesthood forever because he does, he's resurrected. He's sitting beside the God of the heavens at his right hand. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I want you to think back to the Old Testament. You have an Old Testament priest who's making sacrifice. Now, folks, not all priests were made equal. Okay? Some of them were, all of them were sinners, but some of them were bigger sinners than others. And we see that specifically in the New Testament. All right? The point being is this, all right? Every time a new priest would die, now you have a new priest coming up. It's kind of like a new pastor. Kind of got to get, like, who is that weird guy? Who's that weird dude, right? Just different, right? There's something different. And there's something you can tell there's no permanence to this, if you will. There's always something changing. But with Christ, there is no end. It just continues. Christ is continually, every day, at this moment, making intercession. He doesn't sleep, all right? He doesn't pause for rest. He doesn't pause because he's annoyed. All right. He doesn't ghost you. All right. Whatever that means. That's a new lingo term. Somebody can figure that out. Look it up on Google. Okay. Uh, But the idea here is that he is constantly intercessing on behalf of those whom he has redeemed through his blood. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than the Levites. He's greater than David. He is greater than all of them. Now, we hear that, and we're like, well, we hear that every Sunday. It still bears in mind that it's good to remember and to be reminded of that truth. But these individuals would have been in shock and awe. They would have been in shock and awe. And I dare say that there are some individuals in the, in the church who are going to be surprised one day when they find out, even in the church, that Jesus really does reign supreme even over their favorite sports figure, their favorite politician, or their family, fo- favorite family member. Because they will not save you. 
They will not save you. They have no power to save you. None. But Christ does. So that's kind of the picture. That's the summary, if you will, of the first three quarters of chapter 7. It's this point. We've been building up to it. Who is this Melchizedek? Well, his name says it. He's a priest and king. He's a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And his priesthood reigns forever. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than the Levites. He's greater than all of those because he was blessing people inferior to him. He was receiving tithes from people inferior to him. And there is one who is going to come after who is greater still because that priesthood reigns forever, not because of Melchizedek, but because of the one who would take the reins afterwards. I love this phrase by uh, Tom Schreiner, and he's speaking in the context of this audience. Do you want to hook your wagon to a Levite who is going to die, who is a sinner and going to die and move away, go away? Or do you want to hook your wagon to Jesus who is constant forever, never changing? So let's worship just a little bit. I love this last passage here, and that's why I chose it as our focal point. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, meaning Jesus. It is, an, it is fitting that we should have such a high priest as Jesus. And then he starts listing some superlatives about Jesus. And I found some scripture that kind of goes along. What's the first thing he says? He says, holy. He describes Jesus as holy. In Revelation 4, 8, it says, and the four living creatures, each one of them with six wings and are full of eyes around, uh, all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is our Jesus. That's the first thing. He is holy. What's the second thing? He is holy and he is innocent. In fact, here it says, innocent and unstained. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Psalm 106, uh, verse 1, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This innocence has this likeness to goodness and this unstained uh, nature is that there is no sin. Remember that we are born in what? Original sin. We are fallen creatures. Christ was not. He does not have original sin. Now he has to deal with the fallen world and the brokenness and sins and animals, but he himself is the only one that we can rightly say is innocent and unstained. It says here, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Folks, we are all as creations, as human creations of God, born in the image of God. But it is different than Jesus. Jesus is the exact 
imprint. He is separate from us. We have original sin. He does not. We are human. He is God. We create things. He created all things. That is the God in whom we worship. That is the Jesus who stands above everyone else. And then it says here, Jesus is exalted, right? It says, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, bringing our attention to the ascension, right? Hebrews 7, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God, was high, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed in him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Abraham, he's pretty awesome. King David, pretty awesome. Melchizedek, pretty awesome. Moses, pretty awesome. Just go down the line. Pretty awesome, folks. God did not exalt them like he exalted Christ. He did not exalt them. He did not give, he did not give them a name by which everyone might be saved. That name was for Jesus. He did not promise that everyone would bow their knee at the foot of Abraham or Moses or Aaron or David. No, to Jesus. Folks, David, King David, celebrated King David, is on his knees in the presence of Christ. Everyone will bow a knee at the name of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Verse 27 through 28, as we finish up. He, meaning Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer, a, offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, meaning in the New Testament, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the final point here is this. Jesus is innocent and unstained. Jesus is set apart. Jesus is as exalted. And finally, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. So where's the application here? As fallen humanity, we often have this going through our mind that if we only had this, it would be enough. If we only had this, it would be enough. If I only had that job, it would be enough. If I only had that spouse, it would be enough. If only my kids would do this, it would be enough. Folks, everything else will fail you. I guarantee you there is someone in here at some point would say, man, I thought I had the perfect job. And even the perfect job will fail you at times. I had the perfect spouse. And that perfect spouse will fail you at times. I've got the perfect kids. And they will fail you multiple times. <laughs> Jesus 
is enough. He did not have to make daily sacrifices. The Levites did. One was enough for Christ, and it was himself. Jesus is enough. When you are, when you are downtrodden, when you feel like everything is weighing on you, when you feel like you can't get by, like you're in a season where it's like one shoe, dro- it's like I've got two feet, but five shoes have dropped. We have got to keep reminding ourselves that Jesus is enough, that we can still run back to Jesus. It's not that those worries aren't real. It's not that those pains aren't real. But it's that Jesus is enough even in the presence of those. Some of us may say, my children are so far from God that there is no way that, that, anybody, that they could be saved. My spouse is so far from God, there's no way they can be saved. No, Jesus is enough. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop praying over them. Just keep doing it. If it's a friend, if it's a coworker, if it's a spouse, if it's a child, if it's an enemy, pray that God and his very long arm would reach out and save them. The Levitical priests did not have that power, but Christ does. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And that's the Jesus that we worship.